Thanks, Laurel. And thanks, Connie. That I always say I just can never get tired of hearing what God is doing around the world. It's, uh, it's always great to hear what God's doing, and, and especially when uh, we have somebody that's been there firsthand. Let's pray this morning. <clears throat> Father, we come to you this morning in, in, in your presence, but also in the presence of others. To be still and be quiet, to sing, to hear, to laugh, to talk with friends, and, and um, all within the family of believers. And out of this moment, Father, we want to take enough encouragement and enough of your empowerment of your spirit to carry us through the week that uh, we carry out the everyday tasks we have to do just always with an attitude of prayer in the back of our minds. We come to you to find wisdom uh, so we don't make foolish mistakes. Uh, we come to you to find peace so that nothing upsets us so much that we uh, forget that we belong to you and that you are our life. Father, we come to you to find love, uh, but as, as almost always felt through other people, through other believers, we come to you to find the love that keeps us from becoming bitter and unforgiving and unkind. We pray for the suffering of the world. We pray for a world at war. We pray for this world that's just been shattered by natural disasters and earthquakes we pray for the people who have just lost so much in Turkey and Syria, and we pray for the people who are doing relief work there, and we pray that the powers that be allow the, allow the help to get to the people that need it, and uh, that this silly political bitterness uh, just takes a back seat for a while at least. As Father, we are grateful for your mercy and forgiveness. We know many of us have been hurt and offended, even robbed of dignity. And there's no way that they could repay a debt to us. Just like we could, there's no way that we can repay our debt to you. And so we forgive because you have forgiven us. And so, Father, we ask that you empower us to lead lives that reflect your goodness to the people around us. And we ask this if we look into your word this morning in the book of Colossians that you uh, use your scriptures to touch us and to change us and to maybe open our eyes to see you in a different light and, um, and live uh, a life that is secure and content and peaceful uh, with those around us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Couple of, it's been a couple of years. Uh, i share a, a quick story with you. A couple of years ago, I was uh, in Rose Hours uh, to get some ice cream. And uh, I went and picked out the ice cream uh, and I dawned on me that I need to look for something else. So I went looking for something else and they didn't have it or didn't find it. So then I went by the ATM machine to get cash and then I walked out to my car without paying for the ice cream. And I got in the car and I realized I didn't pay for the ice cream. And so I got up quickly, opened the door, ran back in and went through the checkout to go, go and pay for it. Now, you know, I thought you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, it's just a carton of ice cream. You know, I, I could just go on home. Nobody would, you know, probably ever know. And I've just, you know, no big deal. It's a big grocery store. No big deal. But I wanted to do the right thing. And, uh, and you know, this, just because it's the right thing for them, but, but also it was the right thing for me. And I, I want to be a, you know, a Christian who's supposed to do the right thing. And I want to be a man of integrity and all that kind of stuff. And so I did go back. And I don't tell you that story 
so that you will think, oh, what an honest person Tommy is. You know, he did the right thing. Good for him. Uh, I tell you that story because my first reaction was, oh, man, I'm going to get caught. Somebody's going to come out and say, hey, you didn't pay for that ice cream. Or worse, that I'm going to show up on the footage of some camera and Scott Winters is going to come looking for me. (laughs) And so I was thinking, uh, you know, I got to go back in. I got to go pay for it. The reason I said that, because that's, that was my first instinct. It was not that I reacted out of love or any love for the people who, who work there and, and, you know, depend on the prophets and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't out of that. It was because I was afraid I was going to get caught. And I didn't want somebody coming after me because I didn't pay for the ice cream. Now, that's just a little, you know, little story. And, and, these laws are, are good. You know, they are deterrent. They, they do keep people from stealing things. I know that. But they're basically ineffective when it comes to changing a person's character. When it comes to changing their heart, they really have no use uh, as far as uh, changing character. And that's exactly what Paul was talking about last week. We looked at in the last, se- last section of Colossians chapter 2. He's basically saying the law, the law is fine, the law is precious, it is a course, but it is not a source. It's a course for goodness, but it's not the source of goodness. And he says, you can do all these laws, you can do all these, uh, obey all these commandments. And he says, but bottom line, it does nothing for your character. It doesn't transform you. And uh, i got to turn this on here. Uh, So we're going to be looking at at Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. But the last verse of Colossians chapter 2 says they, he's talking about these laws and these practices, these spiritual practices and, and obeying the law and all these kind of things. He says, these have an, indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. They're of no value of changing you. They're no value of transforming your heart, or we would say your soul, your mind and your heart together, this soul, this integrated part. And so Paul, what Paul is doing is he is trying to get the Colossians and us to come to realistic terms with our lives, to come to hopeful but realistic terms with our life. He wants us to understand the nature of the kingdom of God and live that way. And he wants, to, he wants us to recognize the source of this, that it's much better to transform us than just to obey a bunch of laws that we act out of love. When, when Jesus tells the, uh, the Pharisees, you know, or he tells his disciples, your, your righteousness has to go beyond the Pharisees, and they're thinking, how can it get any harder than that? And he basically says, you know, holier is harder. That is not true. You know, <laughs> we think that holiness means hard. That's just not true. He said it's really not that hard. Then he goes on to the Sermon on the Mount, and he says it's really not that hard to do that, when you're transformed from the inside out. When your heart is changed, it just kind of becomes automatic. And then you can go beyond. And that's where true wisdom is. And Paul, remember, this book of Colossians, the idea is for them to grow. His, his, his purpose from the very beginning, he says, I want you to grow in, in spiritual wisdom and understanding. And that is much different than obeying the law. It goes beyond that. We do it out of love. We do it with wisdom. And there are times when we bend and break the law because of wisdom. For example, uh, if, if I was, we were at home and somebody had broken into my house and, uh, and Sue was hiding in the closet and this 
intruder says, you know, is there anybody else in the house? I'm going to lie to the guy. I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, she's over here. You know, I'm not going to do that. Because out of love, I changed. I had no when to bend and change things. We act out of love, and that's a righteousness that goes beyond. And he tells the Pharisees, he says, you know what? You say you're, you're, you're sons of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham's. And he says, your identity means nothing if you don't have the fruit. He says, God can make sons of Abraham out of the rocks. It makes no difference unless it comes with the fruit. Your identity means nothing. And I think Paul is kind of saying the same thing to the Colossians and to us. You call yourself followers of, Christian, or followers of Christ, you're Christians, but it really means nothing unless you have the fruit that comes from a changed life, from a transformed heart. So we get to, ver- to chapter 3. This next, this next section, this next large section of Colossians in chapter 3 and then up to chapter 4, verse 6, he is basically telling us the difference between the old age and the new age. And he says, you leave the old age behind. And I wish he was talking about just leaving old age behind. I'd like to leave old age behind. But he is talking about the old system. Leave that behind, abandon that, and embrace the new. And that's what he's saying in this whole section. And so the first, in the first, uh, first section, he kind of gives us this solid footing of that in verses uh, 1 through 4, which we're going to look at th- this morning. And then he goes on and talking about how to abandon the old system. And then he goes on to talk about how to embrace the new system. And then he talks about how embracing this new system needs this constant attitude of prayer. Uh, this constant prayer. That's what Paul means, I think, when he talks about praying without ceasing. It's not saying these words. It's this constant attitude and constant awareness of God's presence. And so that's what he does in, the last, in the, this next section in chapter 3. But the first four verses, he kind of gives us this, this um, solid footing. And he says, you have been raised to life so live like it in the first two verses. He says, so if you were raised to life with Christ, search for the things that are above, where Christ is seated at God's right hand. Think about the things that are above, not the things that belong to earth. So right off the bat, he's saying, you, you've been raised to life, so live like it. Live like it. I don't know if you're aware, but, but our culture, Western culture, is, is, is tainted with Epicureanism. Epicureanism is a philosophy that says, well, if there is a heaven and if there are gods and they're up there, you know, they are so far away and, you know, good luck to you, but, you know, we're pretty much okay down here. And there's no connection. Just, okay, you're up there, but don't really have a lot involved here. Well, the Jewish scriptures oppose that. They said heaven and earth were created to be together. And now they have been separated. And God is on this this project, this purpose of bringing heaven and earth together once again. And this, this whole program was inaugurated with the birth, with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And it was inaugurated through his life and then his death and then his resurrection. And this is where, this is where we go. It's not that God is way up there, that he is, he is working to bring this together. And when we think of the ascension, we almost think Epicureanism. We almost think that, oh yeah, well, Jesus went and he left us, he's up there, and he's kind of separated from us. Uh, yeah, he did send the Holy Spirit, but, you know, we're, we're sort of kind of up there with him, but it's all theoretical. It's all kind of like we pretend to be there, but we're not really, and we're just kind of waiting till we die and go there. 
That's not what Paul is saying here. He says in that ascension, he says we are, we are with Christ. We are raised with Christ. Search for the things that are above where the Christ is seated at God's right hand. There's more to it than that. There is a presence of Christ. And he tells us to seek the things that are above and not the things that are on earth. Now, what does he mean by that? This is, where, this, is this passage that has about a thousand implications. And believe me, I struggled with this all week long, how to, how to bring this down into, into something that we can understand and sort of grasp, because it is very kind of vague and sort of theological a little bit. But he says, he says Christ is at the right hand, and he says, this is where he has all the authority. That's what this phrase means, to sit at the right hand. He has all the authority over heaven and earth. Remember in the Great Commission, he says, all authority over heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, we don't really have a problem with God having authority in heaven. What we do have a problem with is what does it mean for Christ to have authority on earth? What in the world does that mean? I'm looking around going, doesn't look like he's much in charge. What does that mean? It means that he has the authority. He is in charge. And that is manifested by the church. We are the authority. We are under the authority of Christ, and we manifest that authority on the earth. How do we do that? By loving one another, and by serving the world, especially the poorest of the poor. That's how we do it. Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me under heaven and earth. And he says, but we're not going to do it like Rome. We're not going to do it like the empires. We're going to do it a different way. We're going to do it out of grace and mercy and love. That's how we manifest the authority of Christ. We don't do it the way they do it. When Peter swung, and I think probably swung trying to decapitate the guard, remember that? And he cut off his ear. I think probably the guy moved at the last minute and ended up you know, severing an ear. And Jesus said, we're not doing it this way. We're going to do it a different way. Our authority will be different. So when he says, look for the things above and not the things of the earth, he is saying, look at the world through heaven's lens. Look at the world through heaven's eyes. That's what we're supposed to do. And when he talks about the earth, he's not talking about material versus spiritual. Remember, Christianity affirms the material, affirms the physical. What he's saying here is talking about the systems of the world. Because the systems of the world depends on fear. It depends on, on threats. It depends on manipulation. It depends on control. And, and that's what the world system is all about. And he's saying, don't look to them. See the world through heaven's eyes. See the world through the lens of heaven. He says, you have left the old age. You are now with Christ in God, he says. So therefore, look at it through heaven's eyes. When we have been raised with Christ, as Paul says, we step into the flow of the Trinity. I see the Trinity as this eternal flow of love between the three persons. We want to make it a math problem. It's not a math problem. It's just, it's a, it's a relationship problem. 
God exists in relation from eternity past. And when we are raised with Christ, we step into that. Our life is now in Christ. And we step into that flow of the Trinity, of these love between these three persons. And I think the person who grasps, who is able to grasp their position in Christ is way ahead in wisdom and maturity of the person who thinks their risen life is just waiting after they die. That if they think their risen life is like, okay, when I die, hopefully I will be going to heaven. Well, Paul says, no, you've already been raised in Christ. Already raised in Christ. That's where the wisdom comes from. That's where the maturity comes from. And so Paul is calling us to engage Engage in the work, in the authority here. When we think of the things in heaven, and we see the world through heaven's eyes, through those lens, we're not less useful on earth. We are more useful on earth. So don't think that you're walking around in some esoteric kind of cloud, and you're just you know, hovering above everybody else. Seeing things through heaven's eyes makes us more useful. More useful on earth. He's calling us to fixate on those things, to fixate on the things of heaven. The central feature of this whole section is Christ crucified and Christ reigning. And that's how we view it. That's how we kind of see the world. It's not that we are no more, no more earthly useful. We are more useful. There's another way of exercising authority. And he says we fixate on that. This is the one whose life we share whose throne we share because we have been raised with him. So it's important that we get this, put this part right, that we, it's important that we understand who we are and where we are, that we are raised to life. Therefore, he says, live like it. Live like it. Not the ways of the world, which is totally different, which uses threats and fear and manipulation and control. Then he says, you've been raised to life, so rest in it. So rest in it. He says, don't you see, you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is revealed, and he is your life, remember, then you too will be revealed with him in glory. This is a picture has of, of present and future. He is saying your real identity, Thomas Merton calls it your true self, the way you were created to be, is hidden in God with the Messiah, with the King. There's a security there, a security and a love there. We have moved into a different realm. We have moved into another arena with our life. The old arena was one of reward and punishment. This is an arena of grace and love, of freedom and grace. Love cannot flourish without freedom, and we've moved into this freedom with God, where we can be responsible. Freedom means taking our responsibility. The word actually means able to respond. And when we move into this realm, this realm of grace and love and freedom, we are now able to respond and take our responsibility. Pointing the finger, blaming, victim playing, that's not taking freedom. That's not taking responsibility. This is where we take the this is where we take the freedom, and this is a totally different arena, ground up, 
than the one we're living in in the world. Totally, totally different. But he also says this has implications for the future. He is your life. He is your life. We have been, and we will be revealed. This is an extraordinary promise I think God is making, that Paul is making here, that it's this extraordinary promise that we can be useful here and we have something in the future to look forward to. It is both present and future. And when we face the loss of people we love, we know that Paul says in Philippians that it is to be with Christ. To live is gain, but he says to, to die is to be with Christ, to be with the Messiah. Here in Colossians, he says your life is hidden with God. He phrases it a little bit differently, but he means the same thing, that we are there with Christ. And that's all we need to know for now. Somehow or another, we are with Christ. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of it. Because the end of it comes a resurrection. And he says when he comes again, when he reestablishes, when he remakes the world, when he remakes the universe and brings heaven and earth together and he is permanently dwelling with his people, he says then we will be revealed along with Christ and dwell with him. It has future and present implications. This is where God restores our dignity. Our dignity, our primal dignity, is actually a gift from God. And I believe if, if the church has nothing else to offer the world, you know, if they, if, if they don't ever come to Christ, but at least we can offer people and say, you have dignity, then I think that will go a long way, that we restore the dignity of human beings that they have been created by God, created in the image of God. And he says, and all those things will be revealed when he returns. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, tells the story, it's a fable, about, I think, kind of a, a day trip to heaven, you know, from people uh, who are out of heaven. And they, they come and they see this, this parade coming with this woman, and there's flowers, and there's celebration, and they're all celebrating her, and they go, is this the saint? And the leader goes, no, 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 no. Her name is Sarah Smith, and she comes from Golders Green. And um, you probably never heard of her. You don't know who she is. And uh, he says, he says, but uh, every child she met became her child. And every animal she saw, she took care of. And this is her celebration. And they're going, how is that possible? And he goes on to say, this is how the concentric circles works, like throwing a stone in the water. And it just moves and moves and moves. And he says that, that she has more joy in her little finger that it could cause the awakening of all the dead in the universe. And all that's going to be revealed. Because right now, only God knows your prayers. Only God knows the tears that you have shed. Only God knows the depression you've been through or the pressure you're under. Only God knows all that stuff. And only God knows the kindness that you have shown, that this, uh, the service that you've done in secret. Only God knows those things. But when he returns, it will all be made manifest. Everything else will be burned away. But all those things that we bring to Christ will then be revealed in glory. 
not in shame, but in glory. That's the promise of the future. We know that we are in the flow of the triune God. We know that the Spirit is there, and the Spirit, since the Spirit is there, He will never leave us, He will never forget us, because we are held in the power of God. So this do-it-yourself Christianity is a parody of the truth. This thing of, of obeying the laws and, and obeying the rules and trying to, to puff yourself up with all kinds of spiritual exercises, those are all good. They're not bad things. But if you think this is how you're going you're gonna to display your Christianity, he says that is just a parody of the truth. In reality, it is fruitless. It is even counterproductive. There's a better way. There's a better way. So do the rules matter? Yes, of course they matter. But just not useful to change us, to transform us. They don't mold our character. They don't really give us spiritual wisdom. Having a, having a library full of commands and rules and laws and doctrine doesn't change us. Paul wants us to grow in wisdom. The do-it-yourself Christianity is just based on fear. What Paul's talking about is a faith that changes and we grow in wisdom that is based on love and not fear. It is actually tethered to the truth. And so Paul is asking us, what drives you? What drives you? Are you trying to be like Mother Teresa? Is that, what, if that's what, is that what's driving you? Are you trying to achieve uh, moral perfection or doctrinal perfection? Is that what you're, is that's what's driving you? Well, if that's what's driving you, then it's really easy for that to become self-oriented, and then you think, what's the point? Because you're just trying to build yourself up again by a law or by a rule. He says, what's drawing you perfection no the self-orientation no i really believe that people human beings truly hunger to be good people i think the driving force of human beings is to achieve the good life and to be good people and jesus defines what that's all about in the sermon on the mount he says, this is how we be good people. And the Jews, the Jewish scriptures have the answers, and the Islam has the answers, and Buddha has the answers, uh, Stoicism has the answer, Plato has answers, Aristotle has answers, they all have answers, but only one person actually enables us to do it, and that's Jesus Christ. Him living in us, Him manifesting Himself through us, and he gives us the, the motivation and the power to do it, and it's called love. We do it out of love. I, I've used this illustration before, but I think it's, it kind of clarifies things, the difference here. I have a good friend, a good missionary colleague, probably our best church planner that I know of anyway, and he was telling me about, um, he's kind of a fun guy. He had a van. He was picking up a, a team of Americans at the airport, and they were going through somewhere in, in rural Mexico, and he was talking about how he took them, and they're all teenagers, and they were driving 100 miles an hour on this highway, and they were loving it, of course, you know, the kids were loving it, 100 miles an hour, only because he could, you know, there were no really laws to stop him, so he did it, and I'm thinking, but was that out of love? 
do I obey traffic laws because I don't want to get a speeding ticket? Or do I obey the traffic laws because I care for my wife who's sitting next to me? Or because I had a love for the pedestrian in downtown Hood River? Or the other cars on the road? That is the difference. And I have to admit, it's mainly because I don't want a ticket. I go pay for the ice cream because I, I don't want Scott Winters coming after me. <laughs> but out of love, we do things differently. Like I said, there's about a thousand ways we can apply all this. And we're just going to close with just a, a few things. I tried to generalize it. We, our first job here is to see correctly. That is our first job that Paul's telling us in verses 1 through 4 before he gets into the other stuff in six verses 5 through on, on to chapter 4. Our first job, he's telling us to see clearly. We've got to see correctly. First of all, we've got to see ourselves correctly. We have to see ourselves correctly. That takes a lot of courage. I think seeing ourselves correctly probably takes more courage than try to be Mother Teresa. When we can look in the mirror, and I learned this from my friend Rob, Rob Pareda, that when we look in the mirror and see ourselves correctly, that is a scary thing. Because we operate on fear, generally speaking. Fear of being inconvenienced, fear, fear of being caught, or fear of, of feeling bad, or fear that something, I'm not going to get my rights, or whatever. We, we, have this, we have this ego agenda that we just can't seem to let, let go. And it, believe it or not, it's dominated by fear. It's not the teeth-chattering fear like you're watching a horror movie. It's a fear that, that something's not going to go right in my life. And so our ego agenda gets in the way. We need to see ourselves correctly. We need to see the obstacles correctly. Wounds are our teachers, and we need to see those. We want God to remove them, but instead he wants to use them. We need to see what they are. Everyone believes this, that obstacles help us grow, help us teach. Every novel, opera, movie, every Disney movie is about that, about how obstacles make us better, help, make us grow, help us grow. But when it comes to us personally, to my house, my family, to myself, I don't like it so much. When I experience it, I'm not very crazy about obstacles. We want to eliminate them. That is adolescent thinking. God wants to use them. He wants to utilize them, make use of them, instead of eliminate them. We need to see the enchanted world correctly. There are so many people who see a disenchanted world. They don't see what is. They only see what is not. They don't see what God has given to us. We see a universe, they see a universe that is uh, without meaning, without purpose, without direction, and they're only aware of what they're missing. We see the enchanted world correctly. And that goes for human beings, too. We see human beings as enchanted people, carrying the image of God. I'm not stupid, I know there's evil out there, I'm not naive. But the Psalms tell us, Psalm 8 tells us, that human beings were created just a little bit lower than God. Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, but says a little bit lower than angels. But the point is, we have dignity that has been given us by God. And we see we are enchanted. 
even the people that we want, want us to drop dead or go away, those people are also enchanted. Those people also carry the image of God, and we are called to love them. The world wants to strip people of their dignity. We're here to restore it and tell people they do have dignity, that you are created in the image of God, and God loves you and wants to be with you. That's the whole purpose. But we also see the damaged world correctly. It is damaged. I can get up here and preach about joy and peace, and it is unspeakably great, but joy and peace don't need an advocate. We're all for that. But it's suffering that needs the advocate to understand that we live in a damaged world, and we need to fix our gaze on the things of heaven, that we need to see things through the lens of heaven. And that means we operate on earth through the lens of heaven. And being a Christian, being a person who follows Christ, does not mean that we are aloof to suffering, that we are distant to people suffering, or that we want to stay in just our, our, our ephemeral oblivion and not pay attention to that. We need to see it correctly. We can get so heavenly blinded that we lose the excruciating process of seeing pain in our world. And seeing things through the lens of heaven means we pay attention to those things. We pay attention to those people who are hurting and to our own hurting. And when suffering comes our way, when that, when that rain comes and the floods come or the earthquakes shake and it affects our home, and our family, the only place we can go is go into our house. It's, if, if the rains have come in and the floods coming and the earthquakes coming, it's too late to build another house. We have to go in the one we built and pray that it was built on a rock. So we do need to see the damaged world correctly. And finally, we need to see the presence of God correctly. We need to see what that's like and what that means that our life is with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. We need to see the presence of God correctly, of who he is and how he, how he sees us and how he loves us. Carl Jung is a psychiatrist and a, and a psychoanalysis <clears throat> that I, I respect greatly. Uh, when I was at Northwestern College, the, the psych, whole psych department, was a lot of it was based on Carl Jung's uh, philosophy and, and policy. He came from a very strong Christian family, and, uh, and, uh, uh, but he rejected Christianity as an adult. His dad was a, was a Reformed minister. He had five uncles who were Reformed minister, but he says, all I saw was unhappy, unhealthy men. He said they lived in moralistic, punitive life, always afraid God was going to punish them that God was going to hurt them. And he said they became moralistic, punitive men. They reflected the God they worshipped. And so he left. That is DIY Christianity. That is do-it-yourself Christianity. This is different. This is a different realm. This is a different arena of freedom and grace 
and love. Very, very, very different. Christ is already um, in a place of peace, which is the right hand of God. And according to Paul, we're there with him. He is already in a place of authority, and he is hidden in the place of God. And he says, we are there with him. He says, this is our home too. This is where our true selves live. The self that God created. The self that God intended. Our true selves live there. It's our false self that keeps getting in the way and keeps causing our failures. and keeps it's the, it's, the, it's the self that God never intended. But his promise is that we are there. And he calls us to see everything else from that perspective. That's not easy to do. But that's what we're called to do. To see the people around us, to see the situations, and look at them through the lens of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that our places are with you. That we are hidden in you with the king. Nothing sounds safer than that. Amen.